Doug, great to meet you, man. Nice to meet you. You were talking about this trench knife. I love this thing because it's a conversation starter. Oh, yeah. So what were you saying? I was saying that um, some of the guys that carried this in World War II um, would machine down or grind down one side of the guard here so that they could carry it flatter against their body so it wouldn't stick out in the sheath when they were doing things like jumping and stuff. So when you find those with it ground down, it's pretty awesome. That's super cool. They're hard to find though. See, they are really hard to find. They are. I've been and they're wanting, pricey. They're pricey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I love had, this and the 1917 version, which is uh, got a triangular shaped blade. I haven't seen that. Oh yeah. So the, the okay. blade itself isn't a flat blade like this. It's right. triangular um, and it doesn't have individual hole slots for your fingers. It's right. got a single guard with knuckles built on the outside of it. Huh. Look at that. See, you got to bring a CIA guy in to tell you the history of trench knives because that's because <laughs> that's what we do here. You got to bring smart guys in to tell us how to do shit. You know well, what I mean? Or I'm just history. a geek. There well, you go. You know, and I noticed you're wearing an Aries watch. I am. Uh, do you know Matt? I, well, uh, so I know Matt via social media, but gotcha. we've not met face to face. Okay. Um, but I got this this watch from him about two years ago. When he first uh, yeah. when he first fired that thing up, yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. He uh, it seems like it. We've had we've had a lot of fun connecting on it, yeah. and, and I've been talking to his son about uh, they're doing some some neat promo stuff coming up soon, and cool. and so yeah. So, you know, let's get into this, man. Um, you're a former CIA guy. When'd you leave? When'd you leave the office? So I left in '99. So I'm a okay. like I'm a Cold War old yeah, gotcha. war, in between wars guy, I guess. Right. Um, it's funny. So somebody was asking me like how I got into it and yeah. what started it. And I was a frat bro from the university of Texas that didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. <laughs> right. And like I had a two nine GPA Sweet. was focused on beer and girls and yeah. not necessarily in that order. And just was about to graduate, like not a clue. And uh, CIA was interviewing on campus. And so I went down to talk to the guy and he's looking at my resume. He's looking at my transcript. He's like, Oh man, I, I don't know. He goes, I'm looking for engineers. I'm looking for right. analysts. I'm like, I'm looking for people that are academically probably performing better than you. He goes, the only thing I think you might be interested in or might be a fit for is the ops side. And I'm like, what's that? He goes, well, those are the guys that go out and, and they recruit spies and that sort of stuff. I'm like, that kind of sounds like the only part of it that I'd be interested right. in. And we just went from there. It was, it was kind of wild. So what year was that? I was uh, 88. Wow. 88. And so 11 years. Yeah. Well, so that was when I interviewed, got into 89 with the process, but yeah, 10 years. And um, which is really interesting because like, I I only knew a few Cold War guys and and we talk about the Cold War and we talk about what they were doing and where they were going. And it's so interesting to hear their stories about Mm -hmm. what was happening in the agency. Um, Because I was over there for 11 years as Mm -hmm. GRS guy and a couple other things. And the the dinners that we would have in the evenings were some of my favorite times to work there because a lot of these guys come back as contractors. Right. And so you get to talk to guys. And I I was talking to guys all the time that were former MACV Mm -hmm. dudes that were working in Cambodia and Laos and all these places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fucking crazy, man. I walked into... Uh, a bar and I was, I was asking, I was talking to this guy. He was old as shit. He had like four hair plugs left mm-hmm. and 
he looked like he was a hundred years old. I was like, when did you come in? He's like, oh, Bay Pigs was my first real, real right. thing. And I was like, <laughs> shut up. This isn't real. Exactly. Yeah. But it, it was like, it was fucking real. Man. I had no clue yet about the history that I was surrounded by. Right. Like we, we still had instructors that had OSS experience. Like there were OSS dudes walking the hallway still and didn't have a clue. And we, you know, I remember an instructor um, in our um, paramilitary course right. who his, he, he talked like this and we were like, why? He didn't move his jaw. Like why, why didn't he move his jaw? And so one of the other instructors said, cause he was 14 years old and he was fighting with the Dutch in Indonesia and he got shot in the face and his jaws kind of just stuck like, and it was like, holy crap. And just to be surrounded by guys like that, that did amazing hard stuff in hard yeah. places was, was awesome. Well, it, it, and it's like the history of the agency is so, one, it's, it's- um, Complicated? It's very complicated. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very complicated. Did you, have you read uh, The Brothers? Have no, you read, I haven't uh, read it yet. I need to. It's, it's on my good. list. Yeah, it's really good. Um, you know, it talks about uh, Alan and, and Frank Dulles, obviously, mm-hmm. and they had such a, a profound impact on American foreign policy, both over and covert. Right. Um, so have you gone, you know, obviously going into the agency, did you start crawling down the rabbit hole and just the history and not really until no? I left, right? Really? Was, yeah. So, you know, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm like those old Marines that yeah. walk around with their red baseball hats on. <laughs> yeah. Like it, I, 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 I didn't appreciate what it was when I was there. It was only after I really left that I really start to get into it. And cause we were in training, right? We're mm-hmm. down at the farm and, um, and we're, we come back in from an FTX and we're sitting there in our BDUs, you know, waiting on showers and stuff right. like that, watching this crappy old black and white TV and the, watching the wall fall. Right. And we'd all signed up to like, go right. fight the Russian bad guys. Right. Yeah. And, and the wall's falling and we went, wait, what does this mean for us? Right. Not realizing that we were at the kind of the advent of a new dawn for mm-hmm. the agency of what this was going to be. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden we started getting drawn into the CT stuff and, and all of that, but just really m- didn't focus on the history of it until after, after I got out, but was surrounded by guys that had touched it all. Yeah. And I, I, I can't imagine the, and that's like going through the museum, for instance, mm-hmm. in Langley, it's such a cool experience because you get to see the kind of, it's a small museum and uh, but that's one of the things I've always just truly appreciated and su- surrounded by people that have done some things that you're just fucking, one, it was crazy. Right. It was just like, what were you doing? You know, and the the stories moving into, um, you know, how people found out about the agency if they didn't know about it because of their military past. But then what landed them there? And I couldn't, for me, it was really hard to um, conceptualize even context to what they were doing right. and when they were doing it. So, and I, I can imagine like during the, the uh, obviously the nineties, there must've been like a, a ton of things that you guys were doing where you were like, what are we doing this? Or what are we doing this for? Did, did everything change at that point when the wall came down for you guys or it, what, it, it, what happened? Yeah. I don't, I, I think there was a period of time where they were trying to figure it out. Right. We mm-hmm. were, the nineties were rough um, from a budget cuts perspective. Right. We, we lost a lot of officers that they got fired or, or quit to go do mm-hmm. other things. Um, and so the agency was really kind of finding its, its feet. Um, but CTC was being stood up. Right? right. And so all of a sudden, you know, I, I, my wife ended up working for the agency as well. Really? And so she ended up working, uh, 
in the first um, Bin Laden unit in like the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And back then they literally had one branch focused on Islamic extremists. Like mm-hmm. that's how small CTC was at that point in time. And it was still mostly focused on all of the European terrorist organizations like 17 November and red army faction and, and right. that sort of Bader Meinhof stuff. And so watching that transition was a pretty fascinating uh, transition. And, and I got, I was fortunate enough. I got to do kind of three very distinctly different tours. Mm-hmm. I got to do a CT tour uh, in Asia. I got to do a, a denied area tour. And then I got to do kind of a classic big city, um, you know, nation state capital tour that was kind of benign and operating environment. So to get to see kind of that breadth of operations was kind of a, a pretty fun thing to be able to do. It, and can you talk about those things? Like how much can you talk about them in the context of like uh, what you're doing? Yeah. 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 yeah no, yeah. I can, I can talk about that stuff. I, can, I, um, I can't talk about where. Right. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, uh, you know, the, it, was, it was basically being a straight up case officer, right? right. A journeyman case officer going out. But, and, but explain what that is. Because yeah. a lot of guys don't understand what it, even a case officer is. Because when you say spy, yeah, you know, people at the agency are like, oh, you're a case officer, right? But for the general layman, they, they think everybody that works at the CIA is a spy. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, right. no, they got forklift drivers and, you know, people just shred documents yep. and like all kinds of janitors and everything. So it's not the case. So what, right. what is a case officer? Yeah. So a case officer's job is to go out and collect foreign intelligence mm-hmm. uh, and, and submit that base, basically back to Washington to respond to requirements. And they do that collection by recruiting and running assets uh, penetrations of various organizations who are providing that information back to us. Sometimes they know it's us. Sometimes they don't know it's us. Right. Um, and um, we run those those assets and run them on a clandestine basis and meet with them and and gather that and collect that information and submit it back to DC for you know policymakers use. And then, what does it take? What does it take to go to go be a CEO? Uh, you mean from a skill set perspective no, like, or like, training like and all both, that? Right. It's because yeah. like a lot of people, they've asked me this and I'm like, I don't know because I was never a CEO. So yeah. I, I can tell you kind of from my perspective as to what it takes, but what does it take from your perspective? Like, cause I, I get this question a lot yeah. in DMs. Like, how do I become a Green Beret? How do I become a Navy SEAL? Like, how do I join the agency? Right. right. I'm like, I don't fucking know. Call a recruiter. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, hey, you want to be a spy? And this isn't a recruiting forum for, you know, the agency by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But you got an actual CO here. So sure. you might as well tell people what it takes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm a fan of the agency, right? Yeah, as so complicated as its history has been, so um, I. I think we we need them and mm-hmm. we, we need the folks that are willing to step up and do that stuff. And so- uh, as you talked about, there, there's a whole range of jobs. Like if somebody wants to serve in the agency, there's literally no job they can't do there. Yeah. And so, um, but from a CEO's perspective, like we need people that are willing to go out and meet with people. So the skill sets required are like, are you able to, to manage relationships? Mm-hmm. Can you um, go out and meet new people, operate kind of without a lot of direction, um, responding to requirements, developing relationships, and then ultimately managing the, the aspects of that relationship in a way that keeps the asset safe, secure, and alive. Mm-hmm. Because one of the key components of it is, is pretty much everything you're doing as a CEO, you're breaking the law of the nation you're operating in. Right. Right. And, you know, the worst case that's going to happen to me is I might get arrested and maybe roughed up and then kicked out of the country. Right. But for the folks who I'm meeting with, We've seen countless cases of them being imprisoned for life or executed for the work that they've done to help support us. So that CEO has to have 
uh, a strong focus on understanding how do I take care of this person? How do I protect right. them? How do I be secure in our, in our operations? So you got to be smart, mm-hmm. right? You got to be, have super high degree of integrity. Um, and you got to be willing to go out there and, and, and focus on something other than just your own goals. Right. And how, how hard is the farm? Uh, it's interesting. I didn't think it was hard. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fun. Um, but, there, but we had a lot of people wash out. Yeah. And so, uh, it, clearly it was hard, um, yeah. because there's a, you know, there's a screening process throughout, right. You're being stack ranked against, um, the rest of your class, but it it was, it was some of the most fun stuff we've ever, I've ever gotten to do in my life, but, uh, it was stressful. They pile a lot of work on you and they're trying to see how well you handle this stuff and ha- handle the pressure, uh, while being able to respond to the tasks that they're placing in front of you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, diff- different folks handled that differently. And, right. Folks made it through that probably shouldn't have. And then we saw that later on in tours where they kind of washed out of tours. And then there are probably folks that didn't make it through that probably should have. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, they failed an exercise and washed out. And then, so you, you, as you go through the farm and it's, you graduate and you're kind of, you're given your, your assignment, right? And so did you go to Southeast Asia first? Is that where you went? I did. Well, actually the very first thing that they did was, um, they were training up folks to have uh, a CT background. Mm. So I actually, I went to work in a predecessor program to GRS. Oh, really? And went through uh, kind of five months of that training pipeline. Got it. So we went out to like Bill Scott Raceway and, and oh, yeah. you know, went to Gunsight and you know, all that <laughs> sort of fun nice. stuff with a, a team of us that were going through and, and spent time around folks like um, uh, Billy Waugh and, oh, and yeah. guys like that. Right. Uh, early in, in that early day of the, that program, which was all at, it was all inside at that point in time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a contract. And, um, and then ultimately sent me out to Southeast Asia to um, a high threat post at the mm-hmm. time where there was a lot of CT activity going on. And so, yeah, that was, that was my first post. That's super interesting. Cause I, you know, I met Billy a few years ago, which mm-hmm. is a very interesting character. And I also, uh, uh, I was at a site, uh, several years later where Bob Bear had been mm-hmm. and, uh, in, uh, and, and I remember because I'd read a few of his books before I had actually joined and, and he had a few pictures of the places. I was like, Oh, that was the picture of him doing whatever he was doing in this place. Right. Right. But so did you ever run into a guy like that Bob Bear, for instance, was he cruising around when you were? So he, so during my time frame in, I avoided headquarters like the plague. I, uh, yes. Right. Yeah, for sure. So if I was back in Conus, I was in training somewhere. Yeah. Right. And so I was almost never at headquarters. And so my only interactions when I was at headquarters were with either EA or CT, uh, CTC folks. And so I, I, I knew of Bob, but had never met him, um, while I was in. So in a, in a small world circumstance, because I went to work for a guy named John McGaffin. Sure. You know, John, right. So John was when it like one of the first guys I went to work with back in the day, like, like 2004. Okay. So he was already out. So he was the former DDO. Yep. And I met John through another guy and he's like, Hey, why don't you come to work for me? I'm doing some stuff in Iraq. I'd love to have you part of it. Mm. And then he had hired Bob like back it. in the day. So all those guys knew each other. And this guy, John McGaffin is like, from my perspective, he's like the, the old school yep. quintessential spy yep. like the the penny loafers and dockers and like drinks or did i don't know if he still does but drinks like a fucking fish yeah <laughs> cusses like a sailor has probably you know a master's degree i know he went to berkeley or one right. of those like super smart yeah super smart yep 
re, like he's a, he's a Hemingway ass character, mm. right? That's what that's how I would describe this guy. And he was the first kind of uh, uh, quintessential old school CEO I'd ever been around. <laughs> I'd ever yep. been around. And I was like, and I was like, man, how many of these guys? Because these these guys are like they can't they can't be too there there can't be too many of these guys around. But when you see them, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. I know, I know this guy. Uh, I know this character, for instance. So did you see that, I guess, when you're kind of like moving through the entire agency and evolution, like this older generation? Because these guys were fucking hard. They man. were. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, I, I won't say his name, although it's, I think it's public, but I remember walking through through headquarters one day and seeing this guy and his... Um, his face was burned and his arm was burned and, and so I'm like trying to figure out what's going on. And right. he clearly had a bunch of surgery to repair it. And like, Oh yeah, he was, um, he was shot down in Africa, um, supporting, uh, rebels in the Congo and, you know, his, his, the plane caught on fire and like, but he was this similar, like a Berkeley or Harvard yeah. or something kind of guy who just got shot down and ended up spending 14 days crossing the African bush, trying to get, stay alive and, and get out. And so you'd meet these guys and there's like story after story after story like right. that. And, and gals like Marty Peterson, you know, um, was the first female CEO sent to Moscow and right. totally got wrapped up there through no fault of her own. Right. And um, it just folks that did some pretty amazing stuff and it, it watching it change a little bit from the old school cold warriors yeah. to um, a heavy focus on the kind of paramilitary mm-hmm. Uh, HVT kind of kind of work, and then I I think I think you'll see the pendulum swing back a little bit again towards um, you know more old school stuff. Well, it, it kind of has to, right? Which right. is one of the things I want to talk to you about. Which is, I have my perspective, which is my opinion only, right? And it's a limited opinion based on my experience. But we have really big strategic threats. I think hundred hmm. percent, yeah. And I I. I I think there has to be a fairly definitive shift as far as the Intel work that we're doing now to recognize the strategic threats and then really pursue them with, uh, I would say the hard work, like the blocking and tackling that we really need to do in the intelligence community. And I guess like one of my questions is how do you do intelligence work while trying to be woke in the government, right? How do you do those things? Do they match? Can I don't know. Do it's it? a good question, right? I mean, I think, I think there's aspects of it where you, where you can. One of the things that I always appreciated when I was in the agency was how apolitical almost yes. everybody was. Right. And I feel like it's still that way largely inside, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't feel that way outside because right. you've got so many voices out there that seem to have chosen a political stance mm-hmm. and then speak to that or against, you know, the, the other side. And so there's a lot of those voices that, that are out there talking that way. But I think for, at the core of it, the folks that sign up every day to go into headquarters or go into stations overseas are still focused on what are the threats? How mm-hmm. do we counter those threats? How do we protect our people? How do we gather the information we need so our policymakers can make decisions? The biggest challenges in, in my mind are the fact that um, we tend to be shorter in time frame mm-hmm. site yeah. than many of our adversaries are. Right. And the, the Chinese and the and the Russians play really long games. Yeah. And we tend not to do that. Um, and we've got, we have far more rotation of people through. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have people making that investment to stay in for, you know, that those long timeframes to fight those targets. And I think, so there's some challenges there that we got to work our way through. But I think at the end of the day, everybody knows one administration is going to be replaced by another maximum eight years. Yeah. And so- 
but those threats remain fairly constant. Well, do you think that the executive office really has the uh, authority to make a huge impactful changes to kind of the strategic direction of the intelligence community? I, I, it's interesting. So I, some of the, so I work, um, I'm the chairman of the board of the James W. Foley foundation. So mm-hmm. Jim Foley was a journalist who was uh, beheaded by ISIS. We all oh, yeah. saw that, um, on, on YouTube. Yep. And so I'm, I'm the chair of that, that, uh, organization. And one of the things we look at is how do we work with the U S government on hostage mm-hmm. affairs? And, um, so we've gotten a chance to watch the Obama administration. We've gotten a chance to watch the Trump administration. And now we're watching the Biden administration. And it's clear to us as we watch how they leverage or set up the NSCs under each of those administrations absolutely has an impact on the intelligence community on foreign policy issues. And one of the things we noticed in um, both the Biden and uh, Obama and Biden administrations is that um, they they have bigger, more bureaucratic NSCs that get wrapped up in um, longer decision making cycles, mm-hmm. uh, more uh, analysis required in order to get something done, more signatures, and and it slows down the process of of being able to do stuff like bring hostages home. Right. And um, and so I think that's probably a pretty good view for how they interact with the intelligence community more broadly as well, that, that it's going to depend on, on how focused they are on the bureaucracy versus executing the missions sometimes. Yeah. Cause I, I could feel it uh, for sure. From, from where I was working, you could feel the shift between the Bush administration and the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. The work didn't necessarily get different. You could just feel there was a, almost like a personality change in a right. way. Right. And I think a lot of that is just coming from leadership uh, one of the guys, uh, he said something about a month ago uh, that really shocked me. So Brennan said something on CNN that really shocked the shit out of me because, uh, you know, from a guy that considers myself conservative, right? I like smaller government. I mm-hmm. think, you know, that's kind of my my shtick. I really appreciate smaller government because I don't, really don't need it, you know, impeding in every aspect of my life. But he said that the... Um, the the extremist elements of this country are teaming up, right? And he he said the 2A, the libertarians, and the white supremacy listed a group of people. And I said to myself, one, I think that's really fucked up mm. that he would identify a libertarian or libertarianism as, as an, an ex- extremist group. Yeah. Did you hear that? I, yeah, I did. It's, it feels like an agenda being pushed rather right. than than a real assessment of of uh, of a threat that needs to be mitigated. Right. And that, and that's the thing that I, I wanted to ask you, which was, is this, do you think, uh, some of this narrative out there that I've kind of, uh, I've, I've seen and I've heard, right. The Brennan saying this one, I think is you're, you're the former, he's like the former DNI, right. Or something like that. Yeah, well, it was D, D, DCI. DCI. Right. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> For you to identify or for him to identify as like people that are pro 2A and libertarian as some form of extremist, I think I think that's, uh, for a lack of a better term, I think one, it's unjustified. Uh, two, I think it's, it's really inaccurate because yep. there's a ton of libertarians that are a legitimate political party right. in the United States. So I don't know how you can just identify that as an extremist portion of the country. And then for not to not be called out on that, which is it's a constitutional right to own a firearm. You can't just lump that in with these other people. Um, it's, uh, it's frightening. 
Actually, I think it's a little bit frightening for a portion of our country to think that way. When it, when a tiger eats a villager in East India, it's right. just being true to its nature. The tiger itself isn't, you know, doing anything wrong. Right. In this case, I think Brennan's being true to his nature. And and while I agree with you on mm-hmm. those points, I understand why he believes them. Why? That's I, I want to know why. I think it's because <laughs> that's I think it's the core of what he believes. He really? believes he knows better. Right. than many other people. And yeah. he can't see the other side. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's able to develop an empathetic understanding of why other people would be where they are. And so to him, he can't really understand why you or I would want to own a firearm. Right. And, and certainly not for the breadth of reasons we might want to own a firearm, mm-hmm. right? He probably would say, well, yeah, as long as you own your double barrel shotgun you're, you're for hunting, you're good to go. Yeah, it's the Biden thing, right? Right. It's like, go buy a shotgun. Right. Got and it. so- but I really think it's rooted in in ego and, and hubris and thinking mm-hmm. you actually know better and thinking that we, middle America, need to be educated on this stuff. And clearly we'll come to right thinking if we mm-hmm. have it said enough for us in time. And I, I think it's 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 wrong. Right. And it and and I think it carries forward uh or carries across the coastal elites, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, where they truly think they just know better than the rest of us. Yeah. And that's, it feels like that to me. It feels like there's a section of our, our government that one, I don't know if it's necessarily a a organized or orchestrated uh, information operation, right? Right. Because that's the one thing I'm always trying to figure out is this, is this IO? Like, are we just, (laughs) are we just in an IO campaign? Uh, Because one of the things that I, I get this question a lot, which is, um, how much is the socialist agenda, do you think, organized and orchestrated from, you know, the political elites? Or is it just something that they believe in and they think they're just regurgitating talking points? Like, do you think there's an organized, um, we'll call it the, you know, socialist agenda that is being, you know, pushed across all the media platforms in the United States? I, I hear this one a lot. I don't. I mean, yeah. I really don't. I do think it is relatively organic. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the extremes on both sides probably are a little bit at risk of, of thinking that their agenda is the right agenda mm-hmm. without thinking about how do we, how do we manage? We've got a complex problem set. We've got a, a diverse population. We've got uh, a complex history that we want to continue to make sure we maintain, maintain culture that we're hoping to, to continue to support in this country. And I, so I don't think it is uh, an organized effort in that regard. So you but, don't think like George Soros is out there like, you know, uh, pushing the buttons on yes, this? So I think he's, I think he is trying to fund uh, things, use right. his money, put it to work in thought tanks, you know, think tanks and places like that. So yeah, it right. is organized to that level. But at the end of the day, having been in the government mm-hmm. for as long as we were, I really, my belief that the government can actually execute on a conspiracy theory at that level mm-hmm. over time I just, I, I find it hard to buy into that, that it's able to be pulled off consistently over time. But I do believe that there are folks who, who have resources that put that resource to work mm-hmm. to try and convince people to buy into what they think is the right platform. Right. So I think the answer is somewhere in the middle then. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the same thing, by the way, which is, and I've, I've said this to a lot of different people, which is the, 
the United States government specifically, even within we'll call it the more covert or clandestine capacity, it's like a, it's like a leaky ship. It really is. (laughs) It's not, it's not a hundred percent airtight guys. Like it really isn't. You've got a lot of people that want to write a lot of books. Mm -hmm. They, you know, seek a lot of fame and fortune. Um, You know, it's not as if there's a cabal of the Illuminati sitting there going, well, we're only going to let this one out. Right. (laughs) Right. We're going to let this one out. Uh, and I think with the increase of, I would say, um, the more extremist portions of information, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists, which by the way, I love conspiracy theory. I love conspiracy theory because it's fucking super fun. It's like the national right. Enquirer for yep. me. So I love and it's it. fun to explore and pull yeah, the threads yeah, on and see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Super fun. Right. So, you know, as we're talking kind of about, you know, socialist agendas and conspiracy theories, um, uh, I, I got to ask you, you're part of the CIA. Uh, what's your take on whether or not the CIA had uh, a part in the JFK assassination? Oh, that's your- a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't believe so, but, um, but I understand why people do. Right. Right. I, and I understand why the Russians would be more than thrilled to continue to carry some of that narrative forward and make right. sure that stuff, that stuff gets out there. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't, I do not believe the CIA had any reason ultimately to do it. At, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, the agency best is served by being a truly apolitical organization right. going out to fight those threats. And and everybody knows that this administration will pass. You just got to mm-hmm. survive that administration or this administration and get through. And you still got budget, you still got resources, and you still got targets to fight. So that's, no, that's why I think not. Yeah, I, I mean, I have my theory on it too, but we-, we well, What is it? Well, I, you know- I think um, I, I think that you had a lot of people or competing interests that were out there, right? I mean, I think you had this really complex history within. I think you had the the, the Alan Dulles mm-hmm. guys that were like hardcore loyalists to Alan Dulles, and then you had the Bay of Pigs, which there was a lot of animus yep. uh, directly correlated to the Bay of Pigs. If I'm the commander in chief, there. yeah. If I'm the commander in chief, the last thing I want to do is piss off the uh, thousand guys in the United States that are professionally trained to organize and execute coups and right. fucking shoot people in the face. Right. It's the last thing I want to do. So when I look at it, I look at it and I say, okay, if, if there was a connection there, I think there was probably a loose connection between if there was a conspiracy, right? So going down the conspiracy thread, I look at it from, you pulled, he pulled air support on basically the day of the invasion exactly. of the pigs. Yep. And then you had a bunch of guys that were uh, killed and captured on the beach down there. And they'd spent years, like this goes back to the Eisenhower mm-hmm. administration. And you had guys that were preparing and going to the bank on the fact they were going to have air support. We told them they would. Like exactly. we absolutely told them they would. Yeah. And so- now what you've done as the as the as the commander in chief is you have just pulled the carpet out from under a group of people that have been spending their lives for the last several years preparing to overthrow a government. Yep. Boy, I'll tell you. I get uh, it. Yeah. You know, you, you, you to think about that in the context of you just made a a, a group of enemies that are not the people that you really want no, to piss off. Motive and means. <laughs> yes. Right. I yeah, mean, there, 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 there is means and yeah, motive. So, exactly. Yeah. And 
I don't know if there was anything outside of the fact that, hey, you pissed off a bunch of CIA guys. And at that point, I think you know it too, because the history of the agency, these guys were operating pretty fucking loose. They like, were 100%. Yeah, especially pre-church. Yeah. Pre-Frank Church. Yeah. These guys were, they were hanging it out there, doing their own thing. Not a lot of accountability. You know, yep. uh, Alan Dulles wasn't the, the, the what we'll call it the best at understanding the micromanagement aspects of what people were doing as far as like, there were a lot of people that just ended up fucking dead that they really didn't quite even understand as to, okay, well, we're sending guys into different areas in China and they'd have like hundreds of guys ultimately just disappear. Right. To be fair, they thought they were doing what was right. For sure. Right. Like go out, here's your message set, go execute on it. But yeah, zero, some over, zero oversight really and, yeah. and some mistakes made for sure. For sure. And I think that there, I think the connections between some of this, uh, they, they're disturbing, right? So when you look at the, when you follow the lines through uh, Alan Dulles uh, and the Nixon administration and then some of the guys that were involved in um, uh, the... Uh, with well, a deep throat connection and Watergate, to Watergate yeah. and then Hunt, obviously. Mm-hmm. These are weird connections yes. that are directly feedback into Alan Dulles where you're like, how is it that the guy that also helped, you know, Alan Dulles write some books for his, his own internal, you know, biographies right. and things like that was also the guy that was rolled up in Watergate but <laughs> correlation is not causation, I, right? I firmly agree. So, I firmly so, agree. Like I, I, I am a hundred percent. I'm not like feeding those into. No, me. I know. And but I do love this. Like it's yeah. one of my favorite things to 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 really like, like well, think about. And if I, if I jump back to, to where we are today, yeah. like when I look at organizations like Davos or Council on Foreign Relations or Aspen right. Institute, not to pick out any sure. one of them as a bad guy. They don't do themselves any favors no. in this conspiracy world either, no. because it is so clear that most of the attendees there literally believe they know better than anybody who's right. not attending there. Right. And so, there, and there's not transparency of what they're hoping to do. There's not transparency of why they're doing it. But it's it's um you know it's a self-licking ice cream cone of you know their same thought model, and mm-hmm. they're they're not bringing in folks to challenge themselves either. And so to the outside world, it absolutely feeds those conspiracy theorists that oh, yeah. there is this Illuminati, there is this, you know, uh, elite class that, that really wants to rule the world. Right. And so they don't do themselves any favors by, by the way they approach all of that. No, it, it, and I, I, think and I know the, a lot of those folks, right? Like, I right. mean, I worked with them, uh, yeah. I went to school with them, like, but they just don't set themselves up for success in a broader sense, right. It, by, by opening it up to, to folks and letting them see the inside of the. the, the yeah. And, there, and there's a lot of things I think that people could, I, I think it's a double-edged sword, right. And I think there's a couple of things I really want to talk about before we get off like the conspiracy theory thing, which is what do you think about, because obviously the Frank church hearings and then the family jewels, obviously mm-hmm. those were super interesting. And then, you know, rolling into Colby and then Bush because we're, shit, you were there. Were you there when Bush was? Yeah. 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 So I heard he signed my commissioning certificate. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard this one, which is, what do you think the chances of Bush Sr. being? I was there when Bush Sr. was president, not when he was DCI. Right. Right. So Webster was my first DCI. Yeah. Got it. Webster. Yeah. So, Yeah. So what do you think? Have you heard this one where Bush Sr. was a knock? Have you heard this? I have heard that, yeah. Theory, right? yeah. It's, it's wild to me. It's wild. There's, there's just, <laughs> it's wild. There's just no way. I, I, I mean, 
It's interesting. It yep. is interesting because when you think about it, his his first I, I've I've gone down the rabbit hole on this one, which is his first business, his wildcatting business was Zapata Oil. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then Operation Zapata was the original op name for the Bay of Pigs. Right. No, I and know. And I'm like, yeah. it's fucking weird, man. It, like it's, <laughs> and, it, and he was working. He was working in. You know, the Gulf of Mexico, obviously they'd just done, uh, what was that Guatemala back in like, what was that? 54. Yeah, and some, the banana wars. Yeah, sure. They had Guatemala back in the fifties where yep. they overthrew Guatemala. And so they were working in the Gulf a lot and mm-hmm. they needed logistic support in the Gulf. So I'm like, okay, man, like Zapata oil, Bay of Pigs, Senior, uh, all those things kind of co- coalesce around it. If it's a super fun yarn, if you guys ever want to go down the fucking yarn string where it's like, <laughs> I'm not the guy, you know, you're not going to get Alex Jones out of me on this one. I'm just saying like, Hey man, there's a lot of really interesting correlations. And the other thing that really struck me is odd was, you know, that he lost all the records from Zapata in mm-hmm. a fire. <laughs> Eight years of right. a, a Zapata were lost in a fire. Like the, the most crucial years where he needed, He's he's one of the only guys to get um, Lloyd's of London to reimburse him for a for a go plat too, right? Right. So, so I'll say this about about that or Bush and Zapata. Yeah, in my mind, Bush was not a knock, but that yeah. doesn't mean Zapata couldn't have been a friendly platform leveraged by right. folks. Yeah, Th- those two things are not ex- mutually exclusive, right? And, right. and in fa- well, actually, I would well, say fact, their likelihood of a knock and a platform being used at the same time in that way would be pretty small. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, that to me would be a more likely um, way of of leveraging an American business like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because when you think about uh, Bush Sr. and then um, Alan Dulce, they were friends. Right. Right. So they were friends. So, and then Jr., obviously uh, not Preston, but, you know, Bush Sr., right? The, they were, it, for him to go out and just strike out on himself in Texas and start going into the oil business. It's not unusual. It's just, I think you're right in the context of, I think that there are probably enough, there's correlation and causation, obviously, Mm -hmm. but there's enough connections between personal relationships and business where the the company might have been used as a friendly, as a friendly, uh, you know, whatever, cut out. It wouldn't be a cutout, I guess, because it really wouldn't, it's not, it's not the right, what do they call that? The fucking business is not really a business. Um, um, whatever it is. Right. I, well, I can't remember. It's, it's, no. it's a business that's like functioning. Yep. It's a shell. There shell, company. Yeah, shell, shell company. There we go. But, but it wasn't fun it, yarn. But it clearly wasn't a shell. I mean, it was a legit, yeah, it's a legit business, business. Yeah. which is, which is, if you want to get into it is way better to use, right. right than, than a shell company anyway, especially if you want to look at today's access mm-hmm. to public records and all of that, yeah. right. Think about the folks that, that jump online and track tail numbers of airplanes oh seen in, interesting places and then go, wait, that company was set up three years ago and it owns right. three Gulf streams. And, you know, you and then know. all of a sudden rendition is rolled up right? and then it's exposed. And then there's a movie two years later. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The lesson there is don't underestimate the Italians. Yeah. 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 Don't ever, don't underestimate. There's people's... no such thing as a friendly service. No. Friendly liaison service. I mean, we have re- relationships, but there's really like, they always have their own interest at heart. Oh, absolutely. And they should. Yeah, for sure. And I think as as things start to advance, um, 
you know, in the international intelligence community, I think, you know, you've recognized a couple of really fucking cool points, which I think we can highlight, which, you know, the Chinese are playing the long game, Mm -hmm. right? And that to me, from just from my small little podium here, that to me is our, 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 our most prominent strategic threat. Like I look at it and I'm like, that's that I think the Chinese are our most prominent strategic threat. Do you do you have a different perspective, or can you shed some light on? No, I I agree. Is? I mean, I, yeah. I'm not sure I would place them above Russia. Really? Yeah, but I certainly would place them at the same level, right? right. I, I think they're different mm-hmm. threats. Um, I think the reason the Chinese threat is maybe where you think it is, is because it's both a geopolitical and an economic threat. Right. As opposed to really the Russia thing is, is still the throwback to the great game of, yeah. of geopolitical. Right. And so, far less economic mm-hmm. uh, in nature. And, and so um, I, I think they're both really, really important threats for us to be paying attention to. And it's going mm-hmm. to be fascinating. You know, they just PNG, the Russians just PNG'd 10 um, embassy officials. They told them yesterday, I think it was. Yeah. And I watching to see what our response will be interesting. The Chinese, um, they're good. They're good. I mean, their service is good. Um, they they really do play that long game. Um, they're really good at at leveraging uh, familial connections. They're really good at, at, shall we say, encouraging the Chinese diaspora around the world to to cooperate. Right. Uh, it's it's codified in their law mm-hmm. that they have to that they that they're supposed to leverage the Chinese. Uh, around the world in their intelligence collection efforts in a, in a way that we're, our law almost prevents us from doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's some things like that, that they have um, an advantage on, on us that, that are going to be difficult to counter. Well, and it, it's interesting because they've, they've really expanded their, I, I would say their, 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 not only their impact, but their interests and their economic and both military interests. And when we look at even just the continent of Africa. Yeah. I uh, immediately was thinking that, Right. right? And uh, have you have you kept up with kind of what they're doing just on the continent itself? And, yeah, a, a little bit. I yeah. mean, I've been watching. I've been watching what they've been doing in mining, mm-hmm. um, and and going in, in in essence. Well, so the Vietnamese after the Vietnam Vietnam War and with normalization of relations, one of the things they talked about was the the risk of peaceful evolution, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning that they would they'd won the war, but they would lose the peace to the MTVification of right. of their own nation. Um, and I think the Chinese have taken a, an approach like that. We don't have to go into hot wars if we can basically take over significant economic aspects of these places mm-hmm. and control natural resources, control trade, control ports. Right. And and so you can you could win that war, so to speak, without ever having to even have most folks know you're in a war. Right. And so I think that's really what we're seeing them mm-hmm. try and do in Africa is is gain control of those resources and then be able to leverage that when appropriate. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's my assessment too, which is I think that they look at us as um, kind of blithely uh, stumbling through our international existence. And they're going to essentially continue to to expand their economic and military power, but mainly it's economic. Right. And uh, which, you know, if you just take a look at the the continent, to your point, the, the mining interests, and we'll just call it general economic interests, uh, I see this as the Chinese are, are, are really serious 
about playing a very long game with the United States. Mm-hmm. And really, I think they're, they're, they, they can accelerate it based on our, um, we'll call it our missteps. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think that us being involved in the Middle East for as long as we have into the detail, I think to not only the expense, but also the distraction. Yeah. Look think, over here. Yeah. I think that that has directly impacted our ability to look at the, the, the Chinese and the Russians as a, as a real threat. Uh, but I'd love to get here what your two cents is. On no, that. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think without getting into a long discussion about whether it's right to leave Afghanistan or whether sure. the Iraq wars were the right thing to do, mm-hmm. there's, there's aspects of it that were right and, and there's aspects of the execution of it that were, you know, right. bumbled and, and that sort of stuff. I think we do have a tendency in a national security establishment perspective to focus on things mm-hmm. rather than to maintain a broad view on what's going on. And I think, so, so we've been drawn into this world of, you know, sandbox for 20 years mm-hmm. that a lot of people have made a lot of money off of mm-hmm. the fact that we're still there. And I think that makes it difficult to allocate resources to look at other parts where threats are still uh, real or, or developing there. And so I think it's, it's definitely brought to their advantage. Um, it, we're hamstrung also by our own efforts at transparency, which I think is important because mm-hmm. we want, uh, like, that's a key to who we are. But, you know, when you're going up against an adversary that doesn't have to be as transparent with budget, with plans, et cetera, I think you're at a, a disadvantage there as well. Well, I think that's, that's my, <laughs> that's my question, which is how do you, how do you maintain, how do you maintain transparency and how do you maintain, I think, uh, the freedom of the democracy while fighting a essentially a fascist uh, regime because ultimately, you know, I I don't think that you could classify Russia as a democracy. No, right? <laughs> no, nope. I, I don't. I don't I, you know, how I, many years has Putin been? You know, <laughs> uh, since the, my entire right. adult life, right. right? So, so no, yeah, so no. Um, and obviously, he plays by his own rules. I think he's probably the the probably the, the single most powerful person in the world, from my perspective. Uh, and didn't you just recently pass a law that said that uh, no president could ever be charged for any crime committed during their own or after? I, I think so. Uh, right? It's like uh, he, might, he might have even written his own name in there. What was right? it? Like, Mel Brooks said, "It's good to be the king." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? How do you for, how do you do that? How do you one, I think every four years when you're rotating the chair of the executive office, mm-hmm. every four to eight years, uh, how do you maintain your strategic insight and execute against, I think, really strategic foes while maintaining democracy and rotating the chair every four to eight years? Yeah, I, I think it's hard. I mean, it's so hard, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think it gets to the core of who we are as a people mm-hmm. and why I think it's so important that we stay in touch with our history so that we inform every generation that's coming up of the need to continue to fight for something that's real. Right. I know how important culture is to you at Black Rifle Coffee. Like it's the key to why you can do what you do. And I think nationally, we have some of that same need to maintain culture and connection to where we've come and why we've done the things that we've done in order to be able to do that when we need to do it going forward. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you you just get too swung by the whims of, of what's happening and it's it's distraction and you're responding to it. So I think it's trying to find ways to maintain and, and, and reinforce that culture within our nation and within our military, within our educational system so that we got people that are willing to step up and do it. Yeah. Do you think that 
the um, the Chinese and the Russians, do you think they're they're uh, at this point openly or covertly manipulating information to pit us against each other? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are, are they doing it? Well, one, if they're not doing it, they're probably not doing their job, mm-hmm. right? Because when I think about the role of an intelligence service, um, both on offensive and defensive um, operations, mm-hmm. like you take advantage of all the tools you can against the adversary that you deem as your your primary adversary. And with the access to the tools that are now available for electronic communications and, and data manipulation, et cetera, they would not be doing their job if they weren't trying to do some of that. Right. And we a hundred percent would be doing the same where we have the right findings to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I think so. Um, is it, is it as effective? Is it all the things we've seen, mm-hmm. you know, brought out as, as, you know, foreign action? I don't know. Right. I think, right. and I don't know that we'll ever know, mm-hmm. but a hundred percent, I believe they're, they're trying to do that. And it's part of what their job is to do that. So. Yeah, and we, we make it easy. <laughs> we do make it easy. Like that, that's the other thing, which is it's maintaining democracy, right? It's yep. like, how do we maintain a democracy and transparency of information uh, without pursuing, we would say, manipulated information right. being kind of executed across the board, especially when information is so easily accessible. Uh, yeah, I've thought about it a lot where, you know, how we have a relatively small YouTube channel there are a lot of people that have really large YouTube channels that hit millions of people. Those are not hard people to impact or manipulate, right? right? But you can really reach a lot of people with a small number of just, we'll call them YouTubers. We, and yeah. In the human world, we used to call folks like that uh, or a potential asset like that, a useful idiot, uh-huh. where you could actually manipulate somebody to achieve a goal without them ever even knowing that you had manipulated them. Mm-hmm. Uh and who would have been resistant to a direct recruitment effort. Mm-hmm. And so that, that I think you're hundred percent right. It's very easy to manipulate folks, especially folks who sit in an echo chamber mm-hmm. of their own reinforcing world where they just keep hearing, you know, folks telling them what they think they want to want to hear. You can, you don't have to turn them 180 degrees to be effective. Right. You just got to shift them off plumb line a little bit. Yeah. And the further you get out, the further you're away from plumb line. And, and I think, so there's that absolutely that yeah. taking place. Well, I, and, it, and uh, I think with the misinformation, I would say, because I, I think that's what it is. A lot of it's misinformation. There was a report, I think last week, where uh, the CIA confirmed that the Russians were not paying a bounty and this right. was essentially uh, orchestrated from the Afghani government, right? right. Uh, but your point was the these are mainstream media outlets that during the Trump administration were continuing to echo the same thing over and over and over again. Right. They essentially crucified the president over these things uh, on, we'll call it CNN, uh, MSNBC, you name it. And it was over and over and over and it was factually incorrect. Right. It was effective. Right. But false. <laughs> right. Right. And right. so, yeah, absolutely. You can see that take place. Well, and the thing that I don't quite understand, and I, and I, I do, which is now you, you, you have the Biden administration essentially saying that's factually incorrect. Um, there's no accountability. Like, so how do you... How do you know? Yeah. How do you know? Yeah. I, that's a tough one. So, you know, I'm... I teach on intelligence collection at a local university in, in the East Coast, and we're talking uh, right now about OSINT, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and about the risk in OSINT. Uh, there's so much data out there. How do you get to what's real, separate the wheat from the chaff, and then apply the right analytical mindsets mm-hmm. to it? And it's a process and it takes time and resources to do it. And I, I think about even within friend groups and family members and so on and so forth and their willingness to go based on the headline without reading the article. Yeah. So that I think that there's a critical component of critical thinking that's got to be applied mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Like as, as silly as it seems, Twitter's reminding people to read the article before they retweet it. Right. Like you need, you should do that. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you really should go to original source information if you can. And so you go back to, you know, how do we know what they're saying here? It's tough. But if you really want to know, you start digging and you start mm-hmm. pulling at threads and, and then you measure that against the other things that you know and say, okay, d- does it fit within these, these rubrics that make sense? Or is it, is there something about it that remains off? And do, can I dig into that more? And you may not be able to get there all the way, but you, you probably can get a better sense of veracity about it um, than just reading that first article that somebody has, has forwarded on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Right. But it, it takes work and it, effort and, and we're, we got folks that are pretty lazy. They just want to go by the headline and, yeah. and say, this is good. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of really uh, complacent and lazy people that ultimately just want to share a headline. Uh, you know, I think that there's, there has to be some type of accountability right, right. from the media perspective. So if there's no accountability of the media and they can just publish anything they want, they can also be manipulated. Right. And if you're manipulating information and especially the mainstream media, I think that's one of the reasons why there's so much distrust just in general in the mainstream media, because they're like, because they're all lying. Right. It doesn't fucking matter. You guys are all lying. And then they go and they search, search for um, alternate forms of information. Well, that could be even worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, then you're like, well, fuck, there's, you know, lizard people are controlling the earth and the earth is fucking flat. And right. then it just spins out into like pure fucking craziness actually yep. after a while. Um, yep. I know I'm- you got to go here pretty soon. So I want to be very conscious of your, of your time. What do you, what do you, what have you done since you left the agency? So what, you, what, what all you, what all have you done since then? Uh, a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah. So um, I, I'm actually CFO of a manufacturing company that makes aircraft engine components. Really? And, yeah. Oh. Um, we got factories all, all over the world and probably about a thousand employees worldwide. And so that's a lot of fun to do. So uh, was that your, was that your undergrad? Were, were you a finance I, guy? So I, I, when I left the agency, I went to grad school huh? and got my MBA. And then transitioned into high-tech manufacturing and, and that sort of stuff. Holy shit. And then uh, I spend uh, a bunch of time actually working on film and TV projects. Really? Yeah. And well, can you tell me which ones? Sure. So um, did a show a couple of years ago called The Brave, which was about a Task Force Orange type okay. organization. Right. Uh, it was on NBC. Sadly, it only made 13 episodes, but, okay. we, but we worked on that. I was one of the tech advisors on that show. Nice. I work on SWAT, which is on CBS. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what I get to do for a lot of these shows is I get to hire vets and put them on the shows cool. as special abilities actors. Mm-hmm. So many of them, it's their first shot in Hollywood. Right. And, but I already know they're going to take orders. Well, they're going to wear a uniform. Well, they're going to handle a weapon and not look like an idiot Right. and, and make the show better. And they get a little exposure to life in Hollywood. They get their first Hollywood paycheck and get them set on a path towards maybe becoming an actor. And so that's a lot of fun to do that's that. Cool. We made some zombie movies. Uh, actually, J, uh, JT came out and, and visited us on set because we uh, we were shooting a movie out in El Paso using the same helos uh, as Range 15. Oh, yeah. And uh, he came out and visited us while we were out there. And, and we got another one of those movies coming out later this year. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, do a bunch of fun stuff like that. And where, where do you call home? 
I live in New Hampshire now, um, but yeah. I'm from Texas. Right. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we'll, we'll see. It, New Hampshire was a great place to raise a family, um, but it's, it's, it's freaking cold in the winter there, yeah, man. It is cold, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's super cold. Like, I, I don't know how you guys do it, to be honest with you. Like, I love it up there in the summertime. Yeah. Like, I love it up there in the summertime, but you get like six months. Right. And then after that, but it's the same thing. Texas, you get six months of good weather right. and the rest of it's hot. So freaking hot that you don't even want to like right. be near it. Uh, well, this is great, man. This yeah, has been an awesome it. conversation. I really appreciate it's you coming good. out and doing it. Uh, hopefully I'll have you back. That'd be great. Cool. Love what you guys do. It's, it's been, it's been fun to watch you guys grow and, and see all the really cool stuff you're doing, like with BRCC fund and, that's BRCC so, fund is like, that's, that's the big one for that's us awesome. next, right? It's, uh, it's going to be super fucking cool. So that's cool. We'll get you back here, man. All thanks. right, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. Appreciate yeah, it, buddy.